Good morning. morning. It's great to see you, and uh, wow, I like this church. (laughs) You guys, oh man, this, I firmly believe, church should feel good. This feels good, because obviously, Jesus comes first. There's nothing more satisfying. So, all I want to do in this sermon today is encourage you to keep going, because you're obviously killing it. (laughs) That's all I want to do. I'm not here to correct you, just to cheer you on. I'm your head cheerleader today, okay? Uh, Jannie and I feel so privileged to be with you. We're grateful to the leaders of the church for the gracious invitation. And we bring you greetings from Emmanuel Church in Nashville. If you're ever in Nashville on a Sunday morning, please come worship with us. We would love to see you. Now, you have, perhaps you can open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, but you also have this this part of the Bible that we're going to look at now in the bulletin insert. I'd like us to, to just listen to as I read this, and then I want to sort of add some follow-up thoughts. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Now, I, I can't resist the temptation to add a comment already. You see that word, urge? <clears throat> Paul feels urgency about something. And he, <clears throat> excuse me, he's just told us he's a prisoner. He has no time to waste on secondary issues. The man is in prison, excuse me. <clears throat> and he's down on his knees, clasping his hands together, begging us for something. That's what the word urge suggests. It paints the picture of a man who feels intensity. He feels deeply about this. There is one thing he's asking for. He has just taught us all this magnificent theology in chapters 1 through 3. Now he wants us to do something about it, and there is one thing first and foremost on his mind and on his heart, and he's not ashamed to beg. This is the Apostle Paul for crying out loud. One of the, maybe the greatest Christian who ever lived. And he's down before us, begging us for something, urging us to do something, pleading with us. Huh. So whatever is going to follow the rest of the passage, this really matters. Right? Okay, well, let's start again. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling it to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, oh, that's a strong word, we'll come back to that, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That is, in, <laughs> we might say, in y'all. This is God's word. There is a way for every church to compel the attention of the watching world. And it requires no addition to the budget, no change in the bylaws, no denominational realignment. Every church as it is can become wonderfully captivating, not by changing anything, but by allowing its already established beliefs, like Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, who's going to argue with this, allowing those beliefs, those doctrines, those teachings, that theology, allowing that to have its true and intended authority among us. The doctrine of the gospel was never meant to hang in midair as a mere abstraction. That doctrine creates a whole new community, in fact, a new kind of community in a world of rage and division. A community set apart, marked by beauty. And beauty turns heads wherever it appears. The good news that a Savior has come includes the good news of what he came to do. And Jesus did not come just to save some isolated individuals, somebody over here, somebody over there. He came to save individuals and gather us together into this new community to create a new kind of community in this world so that this church, for example, like Emmanuel in Nashville, like every healthy church, this church not only proclaims the gospel, this church is a part of the gospel. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter five, Christ loved the church. In fact, even more, this church embodies the gospel. This church incarnates the beliefs. This church makes visible that Jesus, this church makes it feel like Jesus has come to town. What could be greater than that? Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. And we see it right here in this passage. The unity of God's people, verses 1 through 3, points to the unity of God himself, verses 4 through 6. Or we can think backwards. The unity of God, verses 4 through 6, creates the unity of God's people. 
Or we could say, the unity of every church matters because of the unity of God himself. Verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6. Now, I'm so struck looking at verses 4 through 6 just from 30,000 feet. There's nothing about verses 4 through 6 that is denominationally specific. This is just baseline Christianity. One God and Father of us all, right? This is, this, that's not what Presbyterians believe, but Baptists aren't so sure. This is just mainstream, time-tested, classical, non-weird Christianity. You can go from verses 4 through 6 right to the Athanasian Creed and so forth. This is, this is Christianity. Therefore, there's nothing optional about verses 1 through 3. That too simply is Christianity. So let's think about gospel doctrine and gospel culture. We see the doctrine in verses 4 through 6. We see the culture in verses 1 through 3. What is gospel doctrine? The word doctrine is not a scary word. It just means teaching. What the Bible teaches is the doctrine of the Bible, the theology of the Bible. Our doctrine is what we believe about Jesus. Our doctrine is the biblical message of grace for the undeserving. Our doctrine, it's our beliefs. And most churches have it on a sub-page of their website. In English words that are very readable, definable, quantifiable. They can be examined. They can be discussed. It's very sort of objectified. Not a lot of mystery. We just say it. That's gospel doctrine. Gospel culture it's what we embody together as a church. Doctrine is beliefs. Culture is an experience. It's the ongoing experience of God's grace for the undeserving. So coming into a healthy church like this, I'm I'm hearing, I've already heard it multiple times, the message of God's grace for the undeserving, and walking it among you, I am experiencing grace for the undeserving. I know who I am. I don't belong here. I mean, I don't want you to get worried. I love my wife. You know, and I, I believe the Bible and there's no hidden thing going on. But if, if my thoughts and feelings from this past week were projected up on that screen, you wouldn't like me anymore. <laughs> and if yours were, I wouldn't like you anymore. <laughs> I mean, y'all, we're a mess. But we're his mess. And we all know that. And that awareness... When we walk in and everybody is aware of that, man, it just feels good. It's just like, I, oh my goodness, I exhale, I, I realize I belong. In a world like this, 
I walk into this place on a Sunday morning and immediately I sense, for crying out loud, I finally belong. That's gospel culture. We're talking about, <clears throat> and gospel doctrine creates that gospel culture. We've already heard it and experienced it in, 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 in this service. Gospel culture is a matter of the relationships, the vibe, the intangibles, the feel. That's what culture is. The tone, the priorities, the aroma, I don't know how else to say it, the honesty, the freedom, the gentleness, the humility, the cheerfulness, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened and transformed by the gospel. So we have beliefs about Jesus and we have an ongoing experience of Jesus by being a healthy church together. Now, why does that matter? It matters. Here's, <laughs> I found a, a photograph on the internet from the 1920s, somewhere uh, in, in, our, in our country. It's a photograph of the interior of a church. And there's the pulpit, there's the pastor, and there it looks like maybe there's, there's a choir seated behind the pastor up on the podium. And there's a banner up behind the pastor at the front of the church, Jesus saves. So I look at that photograph and I'm thinking, okay, I know something about their, their doctrine, their theology. They believe Jesus saves. That's right from the Bible. Yay, we're doing well so far. Now, then I look again at the photograph and I notice something else. Standing across the front of the church right down here are a bunch of clansmen in their white outfits. I know what, they're, what they believe, Jesus saves. I can also see they are declaring their culture. Their culture screams, Jesus saves if you're white like us. Which totally denies the message in the banner up at the front. If we do not attend to our church culture and all we do is polish our orthodoxy, we can end up unsaying by our human reality what we are saying by our theological theory and not even realize it. That's why this matters. Gospel culture matters as the human declaration of gospel doctrine. So that's the problem, that photograph. But when a church teaches the gospel and embodies the gospel, that church is a prophetic presence in a world of division and rage. For example, this is, this is actually kind of how we stumbled onto this at Emanuel Church in Nashville. Uh, for many years, we had what we called Emanuel Theology for Men. It was on Tuesday nights from 7 to 9. And I wanted guys to have a reason to get in their cars and drive down to church on, Sun on Tuesday night. So in the first hour, from 7 to 8, I brought some 
substantive, robust teaching. For example, we plowed through Romans chapters 1 through 9 at one point, did a bunch of other things. I mean, I wanted, I wanted the men to be respected. I want their minds to be respected. I want their questions to be satisfied and honored and answered. So we, we dug in to scripture and theology and so forth. And we absolutely loved it. We had a blast. And we all sat in a great big circle, so it was highly interactive. And I told the guys, look, if you don't interrupt me, I'm going to feel really awkward. So let... And, and I said, the harder the question, the better. The more embarrassing the question, the more fun. That's the ground rule. And we just, we got after it. We had wonderful interactions and, and we all grew, we all learned. And then in the second hour, we did two other things. For the first 20 or 30 minutes, we had a time of what we called walking in the light. We got that from 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, which says this. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, walking in the light cannot be living sinlessly because it's walking in the light where we get cleansed from our sin, right? So sinners walk in the light. So what does that mean? It means we come out of the shadows of denial. We come out of the shadows of self-concealment. We come out of the shadows of posing. And we become honest together about what isn't working in our lives, how we're not doing well. We start, well, James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. First John, uh, yeah, First John 1 John 1.7 began to, 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 to mean a great deal to us. It, in fact, it doesn't even say what I expected it to say. If I had written First John 1.7, I would have thought it would say, I would have written, uh, if we confess, if, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, I would have switched the order of the next two things. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, and we have fellowship with one another, right? Like, I get cleaned up, Jesus cleans me up, and then I enter in and participate, and, you know, we start belonging together. It's not what it says. It's like a dinner party when you're with friends, some Friday night, Saturday night, and you're having a great time together, and the food is fantastic, lots of laughs, great time, and then somebody at that table gets real. And somebody at that table starts owning up to what is really hard in life right now and how they're not doing well, and immediately everybody sitting at the table senses, oh, the ground rules just changed. And it becomes quiet, and sort of awe-inspiring. And everybody together dares to step out into that place of light. And the conversation moves from becoming really wonderful to being absolutely glorious. That's fellowship. And when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And guess what else happens? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin we start getting traction in feeling forgiven and getting free together in that fellowship. 
Well, so for those 20 or 30 minutes, I always explained that, quoted that verse, said, here's the drill, guys. And I said, you know, we're, we're going to trust each other. We're going to open up, and we're not going to violate this trust. So we usually broke up into groups of uh, two guys. One guy would say, okay, here's how I've not done well this past week since last Tuesday night. Here's how I've messed up. And the other guy would say, okay, well, didn't try to fix him, didn't even advise him necessarily, just say, okay, well, let's pray. He would pray for him, put his hand on his shoulder and pray for him. Then they'd turn it around. And it, and it took time, it took 20 or 30 minutes to just put right out on the table some things that are hard to talk about. Man, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was gospel culture. And then in the last 20 or 30 minutes, we went to Romans 12.10. Outdo one another in showing honor. It doesn't say honor one another. It says outdo one another in showing honor. This is competitive and everybody wins. <laughs> so snarky put-downs, undermining, slander and so forth became unthinkable among us. And what, what we did, okay, we said we're going to honor one another cheerfully, confidently, right out loud. So this, we wouldn't break up in twos. This was all of us back together again. And I would explain that verse, and I would say, you know, you guys have been walking community since last Tuesday night. Great things have been happening. So here's our verse, outdo one another and showing honor. Here we have, this is honor time now. Who's first? And hands would go up. And one guy might say, okay, Jim, I want to honor you. This is right in front of everybody. And it, it stopped feeling weird after about 30 seconds, the first time we started doing this. Jim, I want to honor you uh, because last Thursday night, when I felt like looking at porn and I texted you, and you called me immediately, and you stayed on the phone with me for half an hour while we just talked that through and prayed that through. You, walked, you got me off that precipice. Dude, thank you. I honor you. And Jim wouldn't take that line down. He said, oh, no. <laughs> Dude, I will out-honor you any day of the week. <laughs> No, you just sit there and listen because you're going to take it like a man. And he would just honor that other guy. You called me. You stuck your neck out. You trusted me. I felt so honored that you would call me, that you would text me like that. And there's no way I'm going to turn away from you. Man. That's gospel culture. And who couldn't flourish in an environment like that? That's what Jesus came to give us. Where we can be transparent. And no one is shamed and cornered and ridiculed, belittled, made an example of. But all of us as sinners bow down before the Savior and experience with reverence, wonder, and gratitude what it really feels like to be saved together as a community. It's wonderful.
So we're talking about gospel culture is a quality of community. And it's what we see right here in verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all, here's what it looks like. Here's what gospel culture looks like. With all, I'm struck by the word all. I, I'm, I think that's there because who of us is opposed to humility, <laughs> right? Principially, theoretically, I'm all for it until I actually have to exercise it. Then I find an escape clause. Then I find some reason why, well, this time the Lord will understand because I got to look out for myself and so forth. So he put the word all there because he knows how Ray Ortland thinks. Maybe you too. With all humility, it just never stops being relevant. And gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Some Christians seem to be trying to prove how serious they are as Christians by showing how mean they can be. <laughs> um, but I'm looking at this to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Paul, it, he's not saying here's something you have to settle for, but the exact opposite. Here is, let's, here's something to live up to, the calling. Let's live worthy of this high and holy calling. This is not, this is not unserious, frothy, optional Christianity for highly relational people, extroverts, who probably aren't theologically serious anyway. This is the high calling we have to reach for by faith and repentance and live up to. This is big deal serious Christianity. This is legit Christianity. What does it look like? One, humility. The opposite of big dealness. The opposite of self-importance, a spirit of self-assurance. Now, interestingly enough, the classical authors, uh, the classical Greek authors uh, of Paul's day used this very word, translated humility. They sneered at it. Humility was not admired. It was considered servile. It was considered low and contemptible. It was not respected. It was despised. If you want to be a loser, be like that. And today, humility is despised. What was that song, darling, when we were little children? Excuse me for a moment. I'm going to be ridiculous for just a moment. A sunbeam, a sunbeam. Jesus wants me for a sunbeam. Did anybody sing that in Sunday school in the 50s? Okay. Here's, here's, here's what the world... Adore Matt. A doormat. Jesus wants me for a doormat. See, that's, that's how the world thinks. Like, I am so not going to be a doormat for anybody. Jesus, our Lord, set a new tone entirely. 
John's Gospel, chapter 13. None of the disciples wanted to get down and do the dirty work of foot washing, and Jesus said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to. There was no depth he would not stoop to. He didn't stand on ceremony. He said to them in that very moment, you call me teacher and Lord, and so I am. He knew who he was. He knew the authority he had, and he did not apologize for it, and he got down and washed their feet. So, now we know how to live. If being a doormat is not beneath Jesus, how can it be beneath us? All humility. That's radically countercultural. But that's who the Lord wants us to be. All humility. Secondly, gentleness. Gentleness. As opposed to pushiness as opposed to touchiness. Gentleness is strength under control. It is voluntary self-restraint. If we want to see the opposite of restraint and gentleness and meekness, all we have to do is look at Twitter, which is explosive, easily detonated, finger-pointing, harsh. We don't do that, guys. Jesus has come and drawn us into not just a new community, a new kind of community. Thirdly, patience, as opposed to pressure, crisis, Everybody needs space and time to rethink their life at a deep level. The Lord above is not holding a stopwatch in his hand, looking at you and your sanctification and going, okay, come on. You're wasting my time. That's not how he is. He is patient. God is patient. If God is not in a hurry with you, how can you and I be in a hurry with anybody else? God's sense of timing is perfect. If God is patient, we can be. Next, bearing with one another, as opposed to bearing down on one another as opposed to correcting one another, fixing one another, cornering one another. In other words, this is respectful. Because we're all a little bit ridiculous. And when we prove it, it really helps if those around us don't point it out. But they're thinking, Ray's being ridiculous, there he goes again. But we love him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful book, Life Together, <clears throat> points out that when one of the, love becomes like real, <clears throat> when one another's quirks stop being irritating and become endearing. That is a healthy church. That's a healthy family.
And finally, <clears throat> eager to maintain the unity of the spirit <clears throat> in the bond of peace. That word eager, man, how unlike the political cultures of our world. You know, the rival parties, what are they eager for? Gotcha. Eager to embarrass. Eager to stigmatize. We are eager for the opposite. And it also means, friends, we are not passive about our unity. We are eager about our unity because our unity is sacred. It is godlike and puts God on display. I love the unity of the Spirit because, you know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that God is for us. And if God is for us, we can create together a for you culture. That's our default with one another. I'm for you. How wonderful. So this high quality of community where no sincere, open-hearted sinner has anything to fear. This matters so much because it is a reflection of who God himself is. And nothing is more foundational and nothing is more glorious than who God is in verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Pastor, the way you prayed earlier for the other churches in town was magnificent. I almost never hear that. Was that not noble and reflective of the heart of Christ to hear the pastor lift up and care about other churches in town who are not rivals but allies? That's what this is about. Our unity makes God more visible in a divided world. Our unity makes it easier for people to believe in God in a world of rage. But relationally brittle, divisive, fragile Christianity is in fact settling for a low standard, an unbiblical standard. And you know, there's, a, there's also a, a wonderful objection that can be raised at this point. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so forth. We are making a bold claim, we Christians, on the basis of this passage and many others, we're saying there is only one true God. We're saying there's only one true religion. And we love this claim. We are not apologizing for this claim because the exclusivity of Christ is the only true inclusivity, the only true universality Everyone who is in Christ is in. Everyone who is in Christ belongs. Everyone who is in Christ is legit. All anyone needs 
to belong to the body of Christ is Christ and nothing more. So we want to be careful not to insert our own preferences as if they were conditions of Christianity. They might be arguable as temporary strategies for missional advancement and so forth, but we know the difference between strategies for missional advancement and belonging in the body of Christ because of the unity of the Godhead. You can be a good Christian, a fully kosher Christian, and be black or white or tattooed or conservative of or whatever. Only Christianity says there is one body with many members, each one unique, which is the very place that Paul goes next. And everybody belongs. Because all we need is the Lord. Now maybe, maybe you, some of us this morning, maybe you don't feel that you belong. Maybe you feel like you're kind of like on the outside looking in. Maybe you're thinking, I, I couldn't belong to this community because I'm too damaged. I mean, if anybody knew. I have so many regrets. But all you need to belong is Christ. Or you might be thinking, I don't belong because, I mean, my politics is, is just out there. Maybe, but all you need to belong is Christ. Or maybe you're thinking, I couldn't belong because, ah, my sexuality is a mess. Maybe, but all you need to belong is Christ. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, I, I couldn't belong because, I mean, honestly, what could I contribute? But all you need to belong is Christ. Life together in a healthy church like this one, it works. Because everyone is damaged. Everyone is a mess. And so forth. And Jesus alone is enough to pull us together. He makes it work in his all-sufficiency. If there really is only one God revealed in Jesus, then he is big enough to include you and me and every other damaged mess who's willing to fall into his arms and just be loved on terms of grace for a change. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Resting in him together is how we roll. Resting in him is where humility, gentleness, patience, 
bearing with one another, and eagerly maintaining our unity, resting in Him, is where beauty comes from. It's your beauty. And beauty turns heads. Just keep going, guys. You're doing really well. God be praised. Well, let's thank the Lord. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege of belonging to you. Only you would love us, and you do. And so, Lord, we ask you to continue to bless this precious church. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So just as he has gathered us here to love on us and to form us as a community of love, he sends us now into the world in which he loves, the world that he loves, to go uh, in, in our love to show the truth of his love to the world. And we can go in all humility and gentleness and patience, not pushiness, not bearing down on others, but bearing with them because of the promise of this benediction that whatever happens in your life this week, it's not up to you. It doesn't come from you. You don't have to make it happen. He promises to make it happen in his grace. So receive these words of benediction. Ray, thank you for your ministry among us. And Janie, you too, among us this weekend. We're so grateful to have you. Uh, and it, wow, it's been a great weekend. I just, I interrupted myself there, but I just wanted to say that. It's okay, okay. I, I didn't want to go without saying that, but receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.